You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to our new course called Supernatural, Signs, Spirits, and Superstition in Jewish Beliefs. It's going to be four classes. However, next week... We will be, next week we have a Lagba Omer barbecue on Tuesday night, and the calendar doesn't allow us to change the date of Lagba Omer. So we, next week you come here, you have a barbecue and a picnic and a, and a bonfire and marshmallows, and the following week we continue with class two. Oh, so this cool. week we're class one, next week it's not a class, it's a barbecue, and the following week is class two, and we finish four classes. So that's going to be four classes to this course. Talking about supernatural, it's something phenomenal, something uh, interesting phenomena that I found concerning talking about things which are mysterious. Human beings have been forever mysterious or fascinated with the mysterious. Something which lies beyond the realm of a rational world and we spend, that we spend most of our time operating in. And the more modern science advances in our understanding of the natural, the more the curiosity, I should say, of the supernatural or something which we don't see becomes more exciting and people look to it more. The meaning of dreams, predictive powers of stars, the power of the evil eye, the curse, ghosts, angels, demons, all these kinds of subjects is something which fascinates people to a different degree that we've never imagined, especially coming after COVID, where people had too much time on their hands, or maybe a little much time on their hands, that gave them time to start thinking about things beyond their actual surface and things that they see and hear, or they started hearing things and seeing things because of it. And because of that, these type of extraterrestrial things all of a sudden have piqued the curiosity and inspired people to be able to look into it, as well brought about devotion, dread, and mockery. Just as a little... Uh, intro to see how people all of a sudden started thinking about these things. Just a little survey. This survey is from 2018 and ever since then things have even peaked even more. A survey of about spiritual energy can be found in physical, how people's belief amongst U.S. adults. 42% of people believe in spiritual energy can be found in physical objects. 41% believe in physics, in psychics. 33% believe in reincarnation. 29% believed in astrology, and a total of 62% of the average American adult, this was in 2018, believe in at least one of the entities of the four mentioned above. If we go to Britain, we have in Britain, we have 36% believe in ghosts and spirits, 47% believed in fate and destiny, 49% believed in life on other planets, and 16% believe in astrology. Just in Canada, just a little, just a taking a little survey sample because some of them are later. The first one was 2018. This one is from 2017. And I think the latest one was in Canada, which was in 2022, where 32% of people believed in ghosts and spirits, 28 in clairvoyance, 26 in communication with the dead, 32% in astrology. Whoops. Well, just one second. 32% in astrology. So as you can see over here, the belief in various paranormal uh, phenomena is something which is quite common and studies are pointing as we mentioned to an increased belief in these type of things and even amongst younger people that means the average younger person believes in some type of paranormal type of thing that exists today 
But I'm sure you didn't come here today to hear about what other people believe in. And you came to hear what is Judaism's belief? What does Judaism say about all these things? And we're going to focus today during these four classes to look at the four different, four different subjects of what Judaism believes. And in our course, we're going to cover the four different ideas. In today's class, we're going to talk about dreams. In our next class, we're going to talk about stars and signs. In lesson number three, we're going to talk about jinx and the evil eye. And in lesson number four, we're going to talk about paranormal demons, ghosts, Dibuk and all other types of things which are mentioned or people believe in at different times. Yes? Next week, we're not going to have a class. So lesson number two is going to be in a week following. That means May 9th is going to be like Bomer. And May after, the week after May 9th, the 16th, yes, the 16th, we can do lesson two. The 30th and then the, then the continuum. Oh, to the beginning of June. Okay? That's because next week we have the barbecue, so you can join us for that. Okay. So over the next four weeks, we're going to try to dig deep in looking into the Talmud, Jewish philosophy, Kabbalah, and all the other type of Jewish texts that discuss these issues. There are, these issues are discussed in a variety of different types of texts and in a variety of different types of ways. And we're going to be looking at different things and you can see as we're going to notice of when they were spoken about of the different things and ideas that were coming up and that were being discussed to be able to get some guidance and perspective on the questions of these paranormal ideas. The explanations that we're going to talk about are going to give us a little bit of insight and understanding about us, the world around us, its destiny, and we are going to take it into it and look at it from all different sides and especially bring it back home to see its practical and contemporary application of how it applies to every single one of us in our day-to-day -day life. So let's start with today's class. Today's class is going to be talking about dreams. So let's begin with our introductory video. I'll make it lower. Nine hundred feet long, one hundred and seventy-five feet from keel to funnel, bearing over two thousand souls including several of the world's wealthiest. Experts had crowned it the unsinkable, and it was making good time on its maiden voyage. One Jewish man, though, battled a feeling of unease. Isaac Faunfall was born in Pennsylvania in October 1868 on the Jewish festival of Hashanah Rabbah, meaning great salvation. He opened a law practice in New York, and in March 1912, he traveled to Nice, France, to attend his brother Henry's wedding to Clara Rogers. The newlyweds journeyed on to the English port city of Southampton to ride the luxurious Titanic back to New York. And why not? A new life, a new ship, a liner predicted to live happily ever after. Isaac chose a scenic route through France, boarding the Titanic at Cherbourg the day after Passover. He paid today's equivalent of $4,000 for a first-class ticket. But he was jittery. Days earlier, he had an awful dream. He saw himself aboard a colossal steamship that crashed headlong into something large and began to sink beneath the waves. He awoke shaken, but dismissed the dream because he believed neither 
dreams, nor the supernatural. The night before boarding, his dream reoccurred. An oceanic collision, helplessly sinking. Escape, escape. But the sun rose, and so did he. A lot less certain than before. Was there anything to this? Should he board the Titanic? Should he share his dream? No, they would mock him. The ship was unsinkable. Isaac quietly boarded the Titan of the Sea, but he later found a moment to share his fearful vision. As expected, he was roundly ridiculed. Until four nights later, when, at 11.40 on April 14th, the ship's lookout spotted a colossal iceberg dead ahead. The Titanic reversed its mighty engines and lurched to the left, but its starboard was lacerated. Ice tore into steel, and water dragged the ship's throat downwards. Isaac heard the captain express terror, and ran to rouse Henry and Clara. Too many passengers refused to abandon ship at midnight, unable to believe that a lifeboat was safer than an Olympic liner. But Isaac had seen this vessel sink twice already. As he rolled into a lifeboat, he said, Well, Henry, I wasn't so foolish, was I? Henry wasn't sure. Surely such an engineering wonder could remain afloat until it could be repaired or towed. But the Titanic's stern rose into the air with hundreds clinging on. Snapping clean in two, the vessel plunged into the eternal silence of a bottomless ocean. One and a half thousand souls were lost. A nightmare, a reality, in the heart of the night. One sunrise and six hours later, Isaac was hoisted aboard the Carpathia, which sailed on to New York. He no longer doubted that something had forewarned him about the disaster. Isaac Fraunfeld dismissed his disturbing dreams and sailed aboard the Titanic. If you had been in his position, would you have done the same? So what a way to start our class today. So the question would have been, or the question is, whoops. If you had been in Isaac Farnthol's position, would you have boarded the Titanic by a raise of hands? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes, if you say yes. No, no. No? Okay. No, because you had it twice. Okay, let's take it a step further. And this one you don't have to answer in public. Let's take it a step. Have you ever had a dream that seemed very real to you? If yes, how did you respond to it? And question number two, what criteria did you use to determine whether your dream would be taken serious, should be taken seriously? We all have dreams. But I think if you think about dreams, now you don't have to answer this, you know, your dreams are yours. The problem is that we all have a very complex relationship with dreams. We have dreams that sometimes feel like they're real. And we feel like we're communicating and there's some type of communication. And then many of us will take certain actions on dreams. But then all of us also have a certain assumption that our dreams are just that, our imagination. And it's our imagination running wild. 
And as we're sleeping, that we have no control of our imagination, we have all these crazy fantasies that are happening in their dreams. Our conflicting attitude about dream is probably also based on the fact on how we define a dream. You tell a person comes up with something out of this world, ridiculous, what do you tell them? Oh, dream on. Then what's on the opposite? You say all you need is a dream and a dollar to win the lotto, right? Or all you need is a dream and a resume to make a job or to make a million dollars. All you need is to dream. So which one is it? Is a dream something that's going to happen? Or is a dream nonsense? And we seem all to be conflicted between what is this really dream? How do we navigate this uncertainty regarding the dreams? Do we know which dream is worthy of being taken serious? Or which dream should be dismissed? Can we learn to interpret our dreams? Are there interpreters to dreams? What about nightmares? Is there anything we can do to stop them? Why do we keep on having them? Or do we get them? Or is there any meaning with them? Should we just accept it and deal with it? Just get better, uh, what do they call it? Uh, stuff, the sleeping pills? And then you won't have it anymore? What are we looking for? So if we were to look into the Torah for a moment, and we look to see... Just in the book of Genesis, how many times dreams are mentioned? People of all shapes and sizes have had dreams. The dreams have told them good things, bad things, or indifferent. In the infographic that you have on page 6, you will notice dreams just in the book of Genesis. I'm not going to go through all of them, but as you browse through the list of dreams that are there, you will find included in it different dreams. Sometimes the Torah talks about a dream which is a direct message to, for example, the king that took Avimelech, the king Avimelech that took Sarah captive. The dream stated clearly, don't you dare touch her or you're going to be plagued. The dream that came to Pharaoh wasn't a code. He wasn't able to interpret it until Joseph came along. Joseph came along with dreams and told it to his brothers. They mocked him at first, as we're going to get to in a moment. And then we have all different kinds of dreams. Some were direct, clear communication. Some of them told them about future events. Some of them were even mocked for believing that future events would come from it. So we see a whole plethora of different types of dreams. Laban was told a dream, don't touch Jacob. Jacob had a dream of ladders, of a ladder of the angels going up and down. Joseph, as we mentioned, Pharaoh and the butler and the baker, all different types of dreams that those who know the book of Genesis, as you can see very clearly, and you can read it, of course, later on as well. But the Torah makes it very clear that some of these dreams were clearer than others. So what are these dreams? What, are, what is the Torah telling us about these dreams? But of all these dreams, there's one dream that was pursued and described by the Torah in great detail. Not only in great detail to the person who had the dream, but also to the interpreter of the dream. And that tells us about the dream of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream and he has a dream of seven skinny cows and seven fat cows and seven stalks of wheat, seven skinny stalks of wheat and seven fat stalks of wheat. And the seven skinny cows uh, swallow the seven fat cows and they don't get any larger. The seven skinny stalks follow the, funny, uh, the seven fat stalks and they also don't get any larger. He looks for an interpreter of the dream and there is nobody to interpret his dream. All his wise men come with all different kinds of interpretations. Seven cities you'll build and seven cities you'll destroy. Seven daughters you'll have and seven daughters will die. All different kind of stories that they had. But he knew it wasn't correct because he remembered. And he also had the interpretation somehow someplace in the dream. And that was none of them. 
until finally the butler and the baker who they met Joseph in jail while Joseph was the head of the prison at the time and he saw them quietly disturbed. He asked them what was their problem and he interpreted their dreams. And therefore they said whatever he interpreted came to true to be. And therefore he told Pharaoh that they know of an interpreter who his interpretation came to be. And therefore, uh, um, and then Joseph was pulled out of the ditch, out of prison, brought to Pharaoh, told Pharaoh his dream, told him the interpretation, and like a good Jewish boy, not only he was suffice with an interpretation, gave him an idea and an advice, how to act on it, and lo and behold, those dreams came true. So what we see from there is, the dreams, seemingly, had a meaning. Not only had a meaning, but there was meaning that there was a future, there was an interpretation to it. But there's a little problem here. That one of the things that the story highlights is not only that the dream has a meaning, is you have to be able to know its meaning. Just by dreaming it on its own doesn't mean that you know what it means. Proof in the pudding, Pharaoh had no clue what it was. Not only that, to find an interpretation must be very hard. They had to find a guy, the only Jewish person in Egypt, pull him out of jail to be able to come tell them the interpretation of the dream. So this dream needed A, to know the meaning, B, needed an interpreter who was going to tell them the meaning for it. So what's going on over here? Even the biblically prophetic dreams seem like they're not so simple. So what do we have over here is that the details of this dream teach us something very interesting about this dream in itself. A, to know the dream, we need to know the interpretation of the dream, what the interpretation is, and who the interpreter may be to be able to explain it. Which brings us to a Talmudic dictum pertaining the story of Joseph's dreams himself. The Talmud tells us something very interesting in text number two. The Talmud says as follows. The Talmud, as we know, is the Babylonian text of the Talmud, which the great sages in the time after the destruction of the temple discussed, known as the oral tradition of the Torah. And they say as follows. Rabbi Yochanan taught in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Just as there cannot be wheat without chaff mixed into it, so too there, cannot be, there can never be a dream without nonsense mixed in it. Rabbi Brachia taught, even though part of a dream may be fulfilled, the entirety of a dream is never fulfilled. The source of these statements are found in the story of Joseph's dream. Joseph's dream, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to him, referring to his parents and the loving siblings. Yet at the time of his dream, Joseph's mother was already deceased. What was Joseph's dream? Joseph had a dream about the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were coming to bow down to him. He came over to his brothers and his bro told his brothers, guess what? I was standing there in the dream and all of you were bowing down to me. His brothers, of course, mocked him. Not only mocked him, were interested in killing him because he felt that he was going to be the ruler amongst them. His brothers believe that dreams are meaningless. Why are you giving any credence to this dream? Not only that, when he told it to his father, his father also mocked him and says, how can you say that? The dream is false. Your mother's not alive. How can, can she come bow down to you? What does our sages tell us from here? The sages tell us that even though, yes, it happened later on in time, when Yosef became viceroy of Egypt, his brothers did come bow down to him, so his dream was in essence true, but there was still something false to it. His mother never came. So even though this dream did have a true element to it, it also had a false element to it. What the false element of every dream may be, you'll never know. So, so 
that mean that we should assume that every dream has a flaw? So I'll get to, so yes, we are taking, I'll answer that question. Yes, we're getting to that assumption, but I'm going to give you a little clue about how this class is, works. Okay. You'll think you have the answer in the beginning, but you won't. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go through different stages and hopefully at the end we'll answer all the questions. So don't jump the gun. You might have, you might think you got it, but then all of a sudden we'll send, we'll be throwing a monkey wrench. Okay. So what we have over here is to summarize the apparent oppression we have is A, a good quality dream. Interpretations are hard to come by. And every dream contains some meaningless details. Okay? So even Pharaoh, he had a good quality dream, but the problem was he needed a good interpretation. Joseph has a good quality dream, but there's some meaningless details in it. So, so far from the Torah, from the Bible, we have come so far to glean that what does a dream have? Dreams are meaningful, if I know how to interpret it, but I got to also know that there's something meaningless in the dream. However, the problem is, as a general rule, when the Torah is telling us something, the problem with learning out from the stories of the Torah is that the Torah has a certain bias, meaning the Torah has a confirmation bias. The Torah is only going to tell us stories that actually happened. That means the Torah is not going to tell you every single person that had a dream during the time of creation from the time of Pharaoh or during the time of the flood. It's not going to mention every single person that had a dream. It's going to tell you the dreams that are pertinent and applicable for us studying the Torah 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later. Every single part of the Torah is there for a lesson to teach us. In fact, the word Torah comes from the word lesson, teaching. That means if there is something, there is no teaching. If there's a story in the Torah, there's a teaching and a lesson that we can learn from it. So the only dreams that are going to be brought into the Torah are dreams that actually actualize or there's a purpose for us to know. So to be able to look at the Torah and say, look, all the dreams that are mentioned in the Torah were meaningful and came their predictions did come true, is not really a good predictor to be able to understand that. Therefore, the Torah itself is not necessarily telling us about the quality of dreams because the Torah is more of an operational guide of how we have to conduct our life. And those dreams that are mentioned will be the dreams that have some application in how we have to conduct our lives. Which leads us to the following things. The lessons that we can learn from the dreams that are mentioned in the Torah and the Bible. Number one, some dreams are meaningful. Number two, dream interpretations are not simple. And number three, dreams are not entirely accurate. So what the Torah leaves us with is, the basic points is, dreams are meaningful, dreams are interpretations not simple, and they're not entirely accurate. Which basically leaves us in the dark about the dreams that we have today. And we are probably left with more questions and answers. Should we take our own dreams seriously? Should we? From the Torah, we yet do not yet know and have an answer for that. And what should we do about them, even if I do take them seriously? So let's go a step further. The place that would help us try to understand a little bit more about dreams would be the Talmud. As the Talmud is the oral law and explains the words of the Torah, the Talmud would help us to understand and appreciate maybe not only specific dreams, but more about the idea of dreams. While the Talmud is full of many different kinds of dreams, the Talmud talks about taking different types of dreams seriously. But in order to move forward about what those dreams are, let's go to some of the general outlook and specific guidelines that the Talmud mentions about dreams. Text number three. 
A dream is one-sixtieth of a prophecy. What does it mean one-sixtieth of a prophecy? So just to give you a little bit of a background in, Jew, in Jewish law in general, if I want to say something is nullified, for example in kosher, if I have a big pot of kosher meat and a little bit of milk dropped into it, if there's 60 times against the milk, then it's kosher still and as if the milk doesn't exist. When I want to show that something is of existence, that there is validity, there is something of quality there, I will say it has at least one-sixtieth. But one-sixtieth is a very small amount. So what the Talmud's telling us over here, dreams are one-sixtieth, that means a small minutia of God's way of communicating with people. What is prophecy? Prophecy is a communication. Prophecy is a communication that you don't always understand. Not only that you don't understand it, sometimes you can actually get a mixed message of it. So over here, the Talmud wants to say that a dream has a small, small, small sliver of prophecy in it. That means an indirect message that isn't always clear, full of a lot of fluff around it, which can be meaningless, and you would have to decipher what part of that dream may have something which is a direct message for you. In fact, the Talmud goes on to, li- to mention a long list of different types of things that people may see in their dream and what they can mean. Just to give you a little glimpse into it, you can look on page number 11. The Talmud tells us about different kinds of dreams, what they say. We only have the positive ones here, but laying tefillin, if you see that in your dream, the dreamer should expect greatness. A haircut is a good omen. Ascending on a roof, the dreamer will ascend to greatness. If you see a donkey, it's a personal salvation. An elephant is domesticated, symbolized of would be Uh, performed for the dreamer, there's a rooster, the dreamer will be blessed with a male child, and so on and so forth. You can see many different things that the Talmud talks about, that if a person sees them in his dream, what he can hope and expect that may come because of it. But what do they really mean? But what is the dreams? Well, we know that the Talmud takes dreams very seriously. Just by the next uh, passage in the Talmud, you will see how the Talmud looks at dreams in a very serious way. Text number four. Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Idi, visited the home of Ravashi. He hosts, uh, the, his hosts prepared a third-born calf. The reason why he talks about a third-born calf because it means it was really fresh. They slaughtered it that day. So he's talking about it was a nice, juicy, expensive piece of meat. And offered it to him to eat. Ravashi responded, I am observing a fast. They countered. Do you not agree with the ruling of Rabbi Yehuda that a person may break a self-imposed fast and repay his obligation by fasting on a different day? Which means that let's say if I accept upon myself today to fast and for some reason I wasn't able to, I can then say instead of fasting today, I'll fast another day. This is a common thing which is done, for example, in today's day and age. It's usual that a bride and groom fast on the day of their wedding. And let's say the bride and groom are weak and they don't want to fast on the day of their wedding because whatever it may be, they can take and fast another day. Or if it's on the day of a holiday, they fast another day for that day, whatever it may be. Ravashi replied, and he says, this is a fast due to a bad dream. Rabba, Rav Bar Mechassia taught in the name of Rabbi Chama Bar Guria, who taught in the name of Rav, that a fast nullifies the partners of the bad dream like fire consumes flax. And Rav Chista stipulated that the fast is most effective when observed on the day of the dream. Rabbi Yosef added, now listen to these words, such fast may even be observed on Shabbat. So now let's analyze what's going on over here a moment. 
The Talmud is talking about of an individual, a great person, a Talmudic rabbi. He has a fast. He, why is he fasting? Because he had a bad dream. The Talmud tells him, not only are you allowed to fast because of a bad dream, and not only is it right to fast because of a bad dream, but you're even allowed to fast on Shabbat. We know that generally, most fast days, even the fast day of Tisha B'Av, or any other fast day besides Yom Kippur, is suspended because of Shabbat. Shabbat, one is supposed to spend his time enjoying with eating and drinking. And the Talmud tells us, why is a person allowed to fast about a bad dream on Shabbat? Because for him it will be more painful not to fast than to fast. What does that tell us? That a dream is to be taken seriously. That if he had a bad dream, he is not only taking it seriously, but he is also taking into consideration doing something about it. He is fasting, which tells us something even deeper than that. That just because you, something, you saw something in your dream doesn't mean it's going to happen. You can actually change the fate of your destiny, which is a cardinal rule in Judaism, the concept of teshuva, of repentance. That just because something was destined to happen to you, if you, through prayer or fasting, whatever it may be, you can avert that terrible decree. You can change what it may happen. And therefore, even on Shabbat, you can fast. This is even brought down on Yom Kippur when we read the story of Jonah, where he went to a city which was completely doing terrible things and he was told to tell them that should they not repent, the whole city was destroyed. One of the reasons why Jonah didn't want to go and tell them was because what if they do repent, then he'll look like a false prophet. Because what is prophecy is that will be destroyed, it will never happen. Because a prophecy, even though it's bad, can be averted. How can it be averted? When people repent like the people in Nineveh did. And they averted the terrible decree and they survived. So that we have a built-in, so to speak, mechanism to avoid terrible dreams from having an effect on us. Not only that, look at the example that the Talmud uses. The example that uses... The fast nullifies it just like fire consumes flax. Over here, Rabbi Shlomo Elamoli, who was a 16th century Jewish polymath, who wrote a fascinating work devoted on the concept of dreams, uses this example and he says the following, text number five. A person who has had a bad dream should not say the decree has already been sealed and hope is lost. The possibility of rectifying through repentance and supplication is always available, even for the worst dream imaginable. This person should fast, repent, and pray for mercy. If one does so, God will accept the fast, repentance, and prayer, and he will cancel all negative decrees that were issued. The negative events portended by the dreams will be revoked swiftly, like fire consumes flax. They will be revoked completely, just as fire consumes flax completely without leaving a remnant, unlike wood, which always leaves some remnant after being burned. That means Rabbi Elamoli is taking the actual parable that the Talmud uses here and is saying that what we find over here very clearly is that just like the Talmud tells us that the fire consumes flax, there's nothing, zero, nada, not even ash left of flax, so too when you fast or when you pray for your dream to be averted, for the decree to be taken away, there will be nothing left of it. The decree will be completely abolished like fire consumes flax without leaving any remnant there.
So what we see over here is that this is an important message that the Talmud is telling us, again, not only about dreams, but in every facet of Judaism. That just because somebody has decreed maybe something bad against you and whatever it may be, we always have the opportunity, and this is an attitude that is helpful for us and only in the way we live our life, that nothing is set in stone. Through prayer, through actual repentance, we can avert the most terrible decrees, and that's what we have Yom Kippur for, days of repentance. That's what we have different times during the year of days of repentance, that we can ask God and pray to God for these terrible decrees to be taken away. Yes? In terms of the steps of actual repentance, I know it's like I heard three steps. The first is like confessing. Can you just like explain the steps of repentance? So that's beyond the scope of the class, but the actual three steps which are mentioned in the prayers of Yom Kippur is called tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah. Which is tshuva, which is repentance, tefillah, which is prayer, tzedakah is charity. Those are the three major steps. We mentioned fasting here. Fasting was used. That's why, for example, on Yom Kippur, we fast because fasting puts a person in a mode of correction. It's, so to speak, a cleansing process. Now, when a person cleanses themselves physically, it also helps them cleanse themselves spiritually from any spiritual negativity that they may have themselves. It puts them in a, so to speak, in a spiritual pedestal because they are not consuming or not allowing themselves to be consumed by the material of the world. Yes? We're going to get, as I said, we're just in the beginning of the class. What about if you're not allowed to fast? With general, so fasting in general today, uh, just, I don't want to go into the whole laws of repentance, but just a little tidbit, it's brought in the Talmudic times, fasting was something which was very common. You find that for different sins, 70 fasts, 40 fasts, 50 fasts, there was somebody that fasted 400 days. We're talking about that they, they ate at night, I'm not talking about straight. But the bodies, our physical bodies were stronger back in the day. We'd see this in Jewish law, many different issues of Jewish law, and fasting primarily, that our bodies were just stronger back in the day. Um, even though people even lived longer as well. People lived until 120. Rabbi Akiva lived until 120, give you an example. But, and it was a common thing. People lived longer. People worked. There was bodily labor that people had to do. They didn't have machines. And people were stronger. The Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, when he brings down the Tanya and the laws of it pertaining to repentance, he mentions about the concept of fasting. And it brings a quote, a, a verse from Proverbs, and your sins you can redeem with the charity. And instead of fasting, you can give to charity the amount of money that you would pay to eat. So for example, and this we find as well for a person that can't fast on a certain time, he gives that amount of money that it costs a meal, and he gives that to charity or to a person that needs a meal, and that's instead of fasting. So today we don't do fasting. For example, it used to be, I'm sure you all heard, if somebody was in a, in a synagogue and the Torah scroll falls on the floor, God forbid, you have to fast 40 fasts. Today we don't do that because nobody can fast 40 fasts. You would give to charity instead. But that's the concept of fasting per se. Even the people of Nineveh that I mentioned before, they were told to fast, they did teshuva, but they didn't fast for that extended amount of time. Even Yom Kippur that we fast, we only fast one day, and therefore it says, and even a person who cannot fast, for example, a doctor says he should not fast, he's not allowed to fast. And the Talmud talks about the children that the parents would go and feed them on Yom Kippur. So it's not like fasting for children. That means a person who's not supposed to fast, fasting is counterproductive, so to speak. That's why you mentioned before about fasting for a bad dream. Today you will not find it common to fast for a bad dream, but it is brought in Jewish law, and we'll get to that as we progress along the course. So what do we start off the section with saying, what's the general Jewish approach towards dreams? 
And our answer seems to be based on the text that is, that dreams should be taken seriously based on what we just said here. The very fact that the Talmudic scholars were fasting because of their dreams, not only fasting, but fasting on Shabbos, that means that they were taking the dream seriously and serious enough that they were looking for intervention to avoid the dream happening to them. So what we have from the Talmud so far seems like dreams is something is a serious business and it's something to be reckoned with. But that's only part of the story. Because as we know, in anything we study about the Talmud, there's always different shades to everything we're learning. But there's a many other Talmudic teachings that seem to imply a very different attitude towards dreams. Let's look at two of them for now. Text number six. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmeni taught in the name of Rabbi Yonatan. Page 17. People are only shown in their dreams the products of their own thought. Now listen to these two stories to prove this illustration. The Roman emperor once said to Rabbi Yeshua, the son of Rabbi Hananiah, the Jews claim to be very wise. Tell me then, what will I see in my dream tonight? Rabbi Yeshua replied, you will see the Persians capture and enslave you, force you to a herd of pigs with a golden staff. The emperor thought about this vision all day, and of course at night he saw it in his dream. King Shapur once said to Shmuel, You Jews claim to be very wise. Tell me, then what will I see in my dream tonight? Shmuel replied, You will see the Romans take you captive and force you to grind date bits with a golden mill. The king thought about this vision all day, and at night he saw his dream. What do we see from this Talmud? What are your dreams? Just a figment of your imagination. Think of something all day, your dream about it by day, by night. The very famous adage, what you think about by day, you dream about by night. Exactly what the Talmud's saying. The Talmud was able to take these two Talmudic scholars, were able to show their wisdom to the Persian kings by telling them a story, a story that troubled them. So they would think about it, be conscious about it, and because of that, they dreamt about it by night. The Talmud illustrates clearly here how our dreams are just our daytime imagination, just with pictures by night. And therefore, should not be taken seriously at all. What about, let's turn to a different passage now. How do we relate to a particularly compelling dream? This is about the future. What about the past? So before we talk about the next text, let me just give you a little pretext about what it is about. According to Jewish law, there were different, especially in the times of the temple, the agricultural um, fields went in seven-year cycles. That means every seven years there was a sabbatical that you were not supposed to work with your field. And then there was every first and third and sixth year, there was different types of tithes that one was obligated to give to the Holy Temple, to the Levite, to the Kohen, or to the poor. And those were general taxes, if you want to call it, or tithes that had to be given, obligatory tithes that had to be given from the field. One of those were called something Meiser Shani. Now Meiser Shani was a tithe that had to be taken to Jerusalem by the pilgrimage of the Jewish people when they would go to the Holy Temple and use the agriculture that they would take and use it there. But you can imagine, being that it was only twice every seven years, to hold on to the produce would get spoiled. And therefore, what they would do is they would redeem it. They would sell the produce, hold on to the money, and that money would have to be spent in Jerusalem. 
So there, that's the, now you know the background of the story. So what happened over here is, this is the process. With that in mind, let's turn to this text, number seven. A person was troubled about the whereabouts of money that his deceased father left for him. He dreamed that his father told him exactly how much money it was and where it could be found. But it was consecrated as Miser Shani. He went to the specified place and indeed he found the specified sum of money. The sages instructed him that the contents of the dreams are irrelevant and he need not treat the money as Miser Shani. So think about the story here. Our dreamer has an incredible dream. He has a dream as deceased father comes to him in a dream. And he tells him that the money that you see in the safe buried under the tree has exactly $25,000. But you should know that money is not yours. That money has to be used for my Shani. That money has to be used in Jerusalem. It's holy money. He comes to the rabbis. What do I do? I wake up in the morning. I go to the tree. I find the safe. It's $25,000. Everything is exactly in the dream. I'm like, do I have to go take this money now and use it in the Jew, and use it in Jerusalem because it's holy money? The rabbis tell him, what are the words? The contents of the dream are irrelevant. They are not here. They are not there. They don't make it anything what it is. How does this work out? Over here we have two passages of the Talmud that tell me dreams are irrelevant. They're just imagination. Don't worry about it. Don't give it any significance. And previously, we have a Talmud that tells us, I'm fasting on Shabbat for a dream. Make up your mind. Are they relevant or are they irrelevant? Do they mean something or don't they mean something? And the key to reconciling these two Talmudic texts comes in the following passage. A passage which contrasts two biblical verses about dreams. The Talmud says as follows. The Talmud asks the following question. A question seemingly, biblically, seem we're getting mixed messages about what dreams are. Rava asks, text number 8, page 20. Rava raises a contradiction between two verses. In one verse, God says, I speak with the prophet in a dream. In the second verse, this states, however, in Zechariah, dreams speak falsely. Make up your mind. Is God speaking, is the dream speak falsely, or is it the prophecy? And here's the answer. The Talmud resolves this. There are two types of dreams. Some come by means of an angel. Some come by means of a demon. There are two types of dreams. The Talmud's approach to distinguishing the dreams is the source of the dream. Where is this dream coming from? If it's an angel telling you a dream, then of course give it some credit. Not only give it some credit, you better take it seriously. But if it's a demon giving you the dream, then you have no need to worry about it. You can ask me, what are angels, what are demons? This is the cliffhanger for class number four. <laughs> but let's assume for right now, angels are God's messengers for good, and demons are God's messengers, or the electric wires that bring through the evil, or the bad, the negativity in life. Remember, angels don't have any power on their own. Angels don't have free choice. Angels are basically, you know, like the electricity is, goes through a wire, a current, to be able to, the light bulb should shine. That's what angels are. They're just passing through to be able to get the message to us human beings. So, if I have a positive spiritual force 
in the dream, then I know it's coming from an angelic place. I should take it into consideration. And because angels occupy the heavenly realm where our souls visit while we sleep, therefore there's something to consider. But, and therefore they're able to communicate divine information with us. In the words of the previous Rebbe, he puts it this way. Text number nine. At a certain time during the sleep, the soul rises up to the heavenly academy, each soul going to the hall of which it's associated with. In general terms, the location of the heavenly place where a person's soul rests at night is commensurate with the spiritual stature that they have achieved with their daytime service. More specifically, if a person observed a mitzvah, studied Torah, or prayed in a more beautiful and complete manner that day, or went to sleep with words of thoughts of Torah in their mind, they merit a loftier location in heaven. The heavenly palace contains hallways, colonnades, lounges, and halls with which the soul can rest when it rises to heaven, draw life during the sleep. The halls of the heavenly place. When a person, pa- when a person sleeps, his soul ascends on high. And while his soul ascends on high, his, son, his soul is basking either in positive and holy and godly places, based on his behavior, how he was during the day, and therefore is enjoying the angels communicating divine information to that individual during his sleep. Or if, God forbid, the person was not involved in the greatest things, or was involved in maybe in some negativity, then... Where is this communication coming from? What is the nonsense coming from? Let's see in a moment. And he quotes over here from the Zohar, text number 10, the Zohar, the Bible, the Kabbalistic philosophy tells us, when a person sleeps, the soul rises to the levels of a holy angels and receives certain information, learns new things, and then returns to its place. This is an experience of a connection of holiness. When the Talmud was telling us, 160th of prophecy, What was the Talmud telling us? This is the prophecy the Talmud was referring to. The Talmud was referring to that when you are able to achieve through your way of during the day, that you put yourself in a level of spirituality, whether right before you went to sleep, or whether during the day you prayed, or you put yourself in that level, then God will communicate to you things in your sleep that your soul will appreciate. Because during your sleep is a soulful moment. Yes? What if during the day you like went through the motions of doing whatever you do, like maybe you prayed, you said your Shema, you know, you usually do, but you like, you dress modest, but like you were just going through the motions, but you were not feeling connected? Well, therefore, that's the soul has a special relationship with above. And the soul is an intrinsic connection. It's not about the external, it's about the internal. And that's why when a person sleeps, the soul is what ascends in high, but his body's still here in this world. And the soul has that relationship, and if they are able to achieve it, that's what they'll get. And that will be the positive messages that they get during their sleep. But what about the demons that we mentioned? What are they? What about the demons that come? So as we mentioned in lesson number four, we're going to talk about more about demons, where there's a little debate about Jewish thinkers about what demons actually are, if their existence, to what extent their existence is, and as I said, we'll get to in lesson number four about it. But let's just take for now that demons are negative forces, angels of impurity. While others may understand it to mean they possess a person's mind while a person sleeps with negativity, 
They're an, imp an impure spiritual being in the context of a person when he dreams, a metaphor for the product of his mind. In the words of a great scholar by the name the Rajbats, who actually wrote a lot about dreams, he was a fellow, the Rajbats was a well-known scholar from, who lived in Spain, North Africa in the 14th and 15th centuries. He had a lot of responses with the Jews around him in Spain, France. He came originally from a little island that they expelled all the Jews, and many Jews had to convert to Christianity there. And he, a lot of times he would write letters about debates with Jewish people had between these uh, questions, especially between amongst the Christians and the Muslims that he, they were debating and trying to convince them and persuade them. And he talks about this in one of his letters. He talks about the meaning of demonic dreams. And we'll learn one part of his letter, and then later on we'll get to another part of his letter. And he says as follows, text number 11. False dreams are the product of an unhealthy, possessed imagination. The sages borrowed the term demon to describe this negative destruction of spirit that afflicts a person. Dreams from this source are meaningless, and one shouldn't be concerned about them at all. Listen to the Rashbats' understanding of what demons mean here. He believes that demons are psychological. These are mental demons that a person possesses that haunt an individual, but they are not outside forces. They have no authority. They will not change your circumstances. They do not talk about your... They're not going to change what's going to happen in your events. They're just a product of your own thoughts. You create your own demons, in the words of the Rashbats. You create your own thoughts, your own bad thoughts. So if we summarize what these two opinions, what we have over here is, we have two types of dreams. One dream that comes from our imagination, which we would call the demon side, and one dream that comes from angels. The difference would be, dreams from imagination are nonsense. Dreams speak falsehood. That's the verse that tells me there's false. Dreams that come because of the angels, they are miniature prophecies, and boy, I should listen to those and take heed. However, we need to remember the one caveat here is there's always something false there. Because not the entire dream, even Joseph's dream had something false in it. So what we have over here is, depending on the source, would tell you what your dream is about. If it's something to consider or not to consider. If it's your imagination, think about something better. If it's from angels, if it's a spiritual source, then it's something to consider and it's something where you have now have something to what to worry about, not worry, actually learn with or enjoy, and remember there are some false parts of it. While we have answered the academic part of the conflict in the Talmud, and while we have still answered, while we have answered everything about why the Talmud now resolved a different reconciliation, there's two types of dreams, there's still one big question. How can I know where the dream is coming from? Do I know, as you said, I can live a life, my day, is it true that it could be coming from a spiritual source? Is it an angel dream or is it a demon dream? How do I know where the dream is coming from? Not only that, there are many different types of dreams that people have. You have dreams, and let's break down the different kinds of dreams we have. We have dreams that are just simple visions. We would call them nonsense. You can call them past visions, future visions, things coming, relatives coming to visit you, whatever it may be. 
That's one type of dream. But then there are dreams which are called to actions. Get up and do something. Tomorrow morning, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, all hell will break loose. Or if you don't go do this, you're not going to find. Under this bridge is a big treasure and you better go find it. You know the famous story they talk about the Jew from Krakow, an old Jew couldn't make ends meet. He had a dream that one day there's a big treasure under a bridge. Takes but two hour distant travel. He goes and travels and he goes up to the bridge and he sees the bridge is well guarded. There's tobles. But he says it's well guarded. Never saw a bridge before. He says, look at this. You see, there must be the treasures there. My dream is true. So he's waiting until there's a change of the guard so he can start digging to be able to find the treasure. One of the guards see him looking around and, and, and you know, browsing there, seeing what's going on. So he says, what are you doing here? So he says, I'm embarrassed to say, but you know, if you tell me, don't tell anybody else. I had a dream that there's a treasure under the bridge. The guy looks at him and says, you think every dream you have, you got to believe. I had a dream that there's a guy, Yankel, that lives two hours away from here and under his oven there's a treasure. You think I'm going to go to Yankel's place and dig up the treasure and check? He says, oh, one second, I think that's me. He runs back home, moves his oven, digs up his, his cupboards and he sees right there there's a big treasure. Right? So that's a very big parable that they give that sometimes everybody looks all over the world for the greatest treasures and it's really right under your nose. Mm-hmm. But that's a side, but it's a story about dreams, so it works out. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the uh, practical of it? What does it mean? Are we going to go follow every dream that we see? Are we going to look at every dream and see how it's going to work out? Do we just ignore it and say it's just a figment of my imagination and therefore I shouldn't put any uh, deal with it? How do I go about it? And perhaps, most pressingly is, what happens if I saw a dream? That scares me. Should I go on the boat? Should I not go on the boat? Like that fellow had by the Titanic. Should I take it seriously? Should I go fast and avert the terrible decree that I see that's laying ahead against me? Or should I just say, eh, nothing to worry about? And there are two general approaches in rabbinic literature of how we go about it. The same response that we mentioned before from the Rajbats, that he was writing a letter to the Jews in Spain, talks about this idea. And the Rajbats maintains that there's no real actual way to resolve what's the source of the dream. And therefore, he brings the Talmud that we mentioned before about the money, because this guy had a real question. Was he allowed to use the money or not? And what did the rabbis tell him? Don't use it. I mean, I'm sorry, the rabbis told him, don't worry about the dream, you can use it. And he explains the difference. Text number 12. The Rishbats continues. We have reconciled the sage's teaching and reached the logical conclusion that some dreams are valid and some should be taken seriously, while others are meaningless and should be ignored. We are now left with the question of how to relate to a specific dream. How are we to know if it is valid or meaningless? The general rule in any situation of doubtful ownership is to leave the item in question in the hands of the person that currently possesses it. This is why the Talmud stated that the person who had the dream pointing to the location of the Meister Shani inheritance should disregard the dream, leaving the money under his full ownership as it has been prior to the dream. Dreams are irrelevant as far as taking money out of the possession of its owner. The Rajbats tells us that dreams are always in doubt, and therefore there's no clear way of knowing what's valid or not, and therefore take a cautious approach. 
I don't change the status of the money. There's a law in the Talmud, and this is found in Jewish law as well, that any time money is in doubt, you leave it where it is until whoever wants the money, whoever claims the money, for example, if you claim I owe you, you, owe, I owe you $100, you have to prove to me that I owe you $100. I don't just say just because you said I owe you. Anytime you want to take money out of a certain status quo, you have to have the burden of proof is on the person who wants to extract the money. So too in this case, the money, the status quo is that it is not Meister Shani, it's not holy money. The Meister Shani, the holy money wants to extract it from the inheritor. Therefore, there has to be the burden of proof and a dream is, does not validate the burden of proof. Should there have been witnesses that saw him make this the transaction, that's a different story. Or else every person's going to come and say, you know, I had a dream yesterday that you owe me money or that my money is in your bank account. You got to know that, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody's going to come with dreams and we know, of course, we cannot use a dream for it. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, the Rajbat says, if I do have a distressing dream and I do have a dream that's bothering me and I have a dream that really seems troubling to me, because there might be a small chance that this dream is true, you do something about it to avert it. And that's why we have the laws about fasting for a bad dream. So just to recap over here, we have it in, you have it in figure 1.4, a summary of what we just figured out. Imagination dreams, they speak falsehood, so therefore there's nothing to it. If it's coming from angels, there's miniature prophecies. However, there's some false to it. What happened now if the dreamer is in doubt? Where his dream is coming from, the Rashbats would tell us, if it's money, leave it where it is. But if you feel troubled by it, you have the full right to do something about it. For example, fast on Shabbat, fast because of that bad dream. That's the Rashbats' take on it, of what would be the law. That's why today, if you look in Code of Jewish Law, there is many different laws pertaining to what happens if a person has a bad dream, how he goes about fasting on Shabbat or any other occasions. However, the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, goes a step further and gives us a little bit of a formula to resolve the doubt. And the key, the Alter Rebbe says, is, is who's dreaming? The question on who's the dreamer. The Alter Rebbe is quoted by his grandson, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzamech Tzedek, in a response, in halachic responses. And he says as follows, text number 13. 13. Page number 27. I heard explicitly from my grandfather and teacher of blessed memory that one should not be worried at all about such dreams, about such matters like dreams. The teachings in the Talmud that lend great significance to dreams only apply to people of great spiritual stature whose thoughts are distant from these matters. If this person has an uncharacteristic experience, it must be divinely orchestrated, and it is therefore cause for concern. However, a person whose thoughts regularly wander to such matters has no reason for concern. My grandfather repeated this many times and would dismiss people who were miserable as a result. You should completely ignore this and be joyful. Now let's understand what's going on over here for a moment. The Alter Rebbe is explaining over here is, yes, there are two types of dreams. And dreams do hold significance. But it depends who's dreaming. Prophecy didn't just come to every person. Prophecy came to prophets. The very fact that a person is able to focus and is able to 
spend his day in a spiritual growth atmosphere in a meaningful way is because he is then rewarded at night with terms of prophecy. And therefore, certainly such a person who has an alarming dream has room for concern. And such a person should then take into consideration, like the Talmudic scholar, who was concerned and therefore he was fasting. When the Talmud tells us about engaging in a fast or in prayer is a person who is in tune with their spiritual psyche, is a person who their mind does not wander throughout the day, throughout the all of imaginations. And such spiritual giants, their elements of doubt remain and therefore they can believe while their dreams know are coming from angels. But if there is something alarming to them, they should do something about it. This is why the halacha is, the money will stay where it is. Because when it affects ownership, we are not certain where it's coming from. But a person himself, where he knows where it's coming from and he sees something, because the whole day he was in this spiritual state of mind, he is not a wanderer. He has to worry about what he saw in his dream. And therefore he is a person who fasts, or he is a person that can know that he's communicating, his soul is enjoying a certain spiritual ecstasy. However, for a person whose mind wanders all over the place, during the day he's caught daydreaming, during the afternoon, or whatever it may be, and his mind is beyond his control to a certain extent, dreams are very possible for him to happen, not only by night, but even by day. And there's no reason for him to be concerned. There is no prophetic going, there's no meaningful communication from any type of prophetic place. As a result, a such a type of person does not have to engage in any extreme measures to be able to worry about fasting. He, life just moves on. And as the Alter Rebbe told him, just be happy and move on. Of course, a person can be concerned that maybe it still has some uh, source of the dream can be completely discounted. So therefore, should they want to do something about it, they can, but they don't have to fast. And therefore, those that asked about fasting, we don't fast today for a dream. And that is because for a person of such type of, if he, want, if he does have, however, balanced probability, where it could either come from an angel place or from a demon, then he should fast as well. That was the Alter Rebbe's point of view. It's an interesting thing that some commentaries have pointed out that in today's day and age, that most of us are, have some device that we look at other than um, just meditating, meaning that people watch TV, movies, and all other kinds of things. Most of our imaginations today are convoluted. We don't have a spiritual state of mind, clear spiritual state of mind, just because of the things that we see by the world that we live in, the information that's out there is so continuously fast-paced, and therefore what we are exposed to and the stimuli from that TV or whatever it may be, automatically it's almost impossible for a person to have that absolute concentration to be only be on spiritual matters all day, unless they're, of course, a person of great stature, and they don't expose themselves to all the nonsense, then they have that possibility. But most of us today probably um, have experienced this imagination and it's coming from the imagination side and not from the angel side and especially going back to when this was said over 250 years ago 300 years ago where there wasn't all of this nonsense out there there was no external stimulation there's probably more chance that you had more people who were aligned with their singular meditation or focus what they had all day so what we have over here is while a mind wanderer 
has a bad dream, it's not valid enough to have a fast. But there are other steps that a person can take. Even for us today, in today's day and age, when we do have a bad dream. And if you'll notice, anybody that was in the services during the holidays, on Yom Kippur, on Rosh Hashanah, or in any major holiday in, outside of Israel, in Israel in some places it's done every day, there is something called the priestly blessing. During the priestly blessing, while the priests are giving us a blessing, the Israelites say a special prayer while we're under the talus. And that prayer is a prayer which its roots of the prayer are in the Talmud, asking God that all our dreams should turn out for the good. Some ask, why do we do it by the, this time? Why the priestly blessings? And the answer is because by the priestly blessings, this is a time where the gates of heaven, mercy is open. It is a time where the priests begin their blessing, that they are blessing the Jewish people out of love. There's only positive energy in the room to the extent that a priest that does not love even one individual is not allowed to do the priestly blessing. So it's out of love, only positive energy. We utilize that opportunity that even our dreams, our imaginations should also turn out for the good. And here is that prayer that you can see. We have it on text number, the full text, which is brought in the sitter. Text number 14, page 29. Master of the universe, I am yours. My dreams are yours. I have dreamed a dream. I do not know what it is. It be your will, my God, the God of your fathers, that all my dreams concerning myself, concerning any other Jew, shall be for the good. Whether dreams I dreamed about others, or whether about myself. Whether others dreamed about me. If they are good dreams, strengthen them, reinforce them, and they may be fulfilled in me and in them. Like the dreams of Joseph. But if they require a remedy, heal like Hezekiah, the king of Judah, of his illness. Like Miriam, the prophetess of leprosy. Like Naaman, the leprosy. Like the waters of Morah by Moses. And like the waters of Jericho by Elisha. As you change the curse of the wicked Bilam of the curse into blessing, so too shall you change all my dreams concerning myself, concerning all of Israel, to good. Guard me, be gracious to me, and favor me. Now, you're going to say, oh, well, do I have to wait until Shavuos to say this prayer? Well, you can come to synagogue and say the prayer too. But now you have the text. If ever a person does have a bad dream, they could say this text. This is a, play, this is a prayer that they can say that asks God to avert and to change their dream for being a bad dream into a good dream. In the actual prayer book, there was in the time when people used to fast, there was something called Seder Atav Cholim, a whole litany of prayers that they would say, to be able to change a dream to good, this can go along and complement some verses of Psalms, some other verses that a person can say that a person can do to, in order to show, in order to help that his dreams to change for the good. So what we have over here to summarize what the Alter Rebbe tells us is as follows. Are my daytime mind and thoughts under my control and focused? If they are, what we have over here is, and you can see this on figure point 1.5, for the focused people, Yes, take it into consideration. See what's going on. Make sure that if it's a good one, that's your prophecy. If it's someone, something to be worried about, you can fast, you can pray. That's for people that are focused. For the unfocused, we have a prayer that we say either during the blessing of the priests, or you can say the prayer on your own at any time. But generally, it's probably figments of your imagination that you're having, and there's no concern should be placed to it, and they don't carry any real weight.
when we have bad dreams that appear to be something potential negatively, we should all likelihood, as we mentioned, it's a meaningless product of our imagination, of something we watched, a bad movie you saw 10 years ago, or whatever it may be. So fasting is off the table at all times, for at least for people that minds are all over the place. And despite all this, if it's still lingering, lingering doubt, and you're still not happy about it, there are some prayers you can say, which is like the prayer that we do during the priestly blessing. So just to put it in a little flow chart here to make things a little easier to understand, our imagination generally, dreams speak falsehood, likely scenario for wandering minds, and therefore permission is not granted to fast on Shabbat, but you can say that special blessing. For people who are focused people, their dreams are coming from angels, and therefore that's a lot, it's miniature prophecies, should they have something which is troubling, they do have permission to fast on Shabbat to be able to avoid that type of things. The bottom line is, when in doubt, the money stays with the possessor. When in doubt, nobody can extract or do something because of a dream, meaning to take out of somebody else or change something from somebody else. This is all the past dreams, visions, imaginations, but there's still one genre of dreams that we haven't yet touched, or one genre of dreams that we still have to look at and probably treat as genuine, regardless of who you are. Even for the person of the wanderer, even if the dream, even if you're a person that has a wonderful imagination or if you're focused, this genre of dreams you should take to heart and listen to. Which is, if the dream is inviting you to be a better person. What does that mean? There is nothing to lose of taking that dream seriously. Not only is there nothing to lose, but every time we do a mitzvah, our soul connects to a better place, and we become a better dreamer. Not only a better dreamer by night, but a better person during the day. Irrespective of the validity of the dream, whether the dream is good or not, what we could do is actually apply the dream to our life and do something about it and becoming a better person. There's a fascinating letter that the Rebbe wrote to somebody applying this response to a person who turned to the Rebbe for guidance in his dream and to interpret their dream. The Rebbe even went ahead to interpret the person's dream in this way to show them how the dream was telling them to be actually a better person and in a completely different way than the questioner ever imagined the dream was. The questioner here was, the question was, there was a fellow who wrote to the Rebbe, this was actually an English letter to the Rebbe, about disturbing dreams that he had that were bothering him for years. He had mentioned that he has gone to some sort of expert of dream interpretations, and they had not been helpful, as you can imagine. He therefore turned to the Rebbe for general guidance of how to distinguish between regular dreams, as he calls it, and dreams that are divinely inspired. He asked about the meaning of the specific dream that he had. And the specific dream that he had was about that he was angry about the injustices in the world. And therefore he believed that because he dreamed about the world injustices, he needs to ascend and he needs to be the one to be able to take charge and do something about it. A man with a dream, right? I had a dream. Now let's read the Rebbe's response. The Rebbe's response, which was written in Hebrew, 
but also underlining some part of this person's English letter. And the Rebbe says as follows. Text number 15, page 32. As a general rule, there is no need for instructions to be communicated through dreams. For instruction, God gave each and every one of us the Torah, the Torah of truth and life, which illuminates the Jew's path in life. When one isn't observing God's instructions given in the Torah, one may sometimes receive a hint regarding this in a dream or the like. That means what the Rebbe is saying is, first of all, everything you got to do is in the Torah. Sometimes when you're not conscious of what the Torah is about, you get the message some other way to look into the Torah. And he says as follows, It is certain that the message of your dream is not about the injustice of the world in the literal sense. Why? For such issues are completely beyond your ability to rectify. God wouldn't be giving you a message for something you can't do. And he's not asking you to become the head of the United Nations or president of the United States. He's not. That's not what he's telling you. Rather, the straightforward meaning of your dream is clear. You are being shown that you need to be angry about the fact that your world, listen to what the Rebbe's underlined here was, your world, your personal life, that you exercise full control over is being conducted unjustly. What does it mean unjustly? Contrary to divine justice. Therefore, you must descend from this mode of being cond- of conduct through actual day-to-day behavior in accordance with God's instructions that it states in Code of Jewish Law. The Rebbe over here is telling him a very basic principle. Number one, what dreams are not a primary source of guidance. The guidance is what God gave us every single day to look at, and the practical is that we have to look at the Torah, and the Torah gives us guidance on what we should do, and that pertinent message is in the Torah for every single one of us to do. In the light of this principle, the Rebbe tells him, the questioner was asking about an interpretation of a dream. What's God telling you in the dream? You want an interpretation, says you see injustice. He is not, God is not telling you about an injustice in a dream about what's happening in the entire universe. Because why would he tell it to you? What can you do about it? Even if you were the most powerful person, what are you going to do? You see how much the most powerful people can do. Not much. But, why is he telling you? Because you are the most powerful person in one area. Over yourself. Your world. Your, your, your dominion. You're angry? You have the right to be angry. Because your world is not being taken care of. But what are you going to do about it? Ascend. Don't just sit back and just watch everything fall apart. Your world is falling apart. Stand up and do something. How do you do something? By following what it says in the Torah. Why are you angry? Why are you upset? Because what the unjust, that means though your world is falling apart because it does not have those ethos and values that it should be living up to. And therefore the takeaway, what the Rebbe is saying from here is, while the first Chabad Rebbe's approach to dreams, the only impossible instructive is to a person who is worthy of wandering, worthy of not wandering. Over here what the Rebbe is saying is that even a wanderer, has a dream that tells him that something to be instructive, something to do, to be able to improve himself, take it to heart. Listen to what the dream's telling you. Here's a little bit of, again, a little flow chart for us wandering minds. Dreams that hamper, and there are dreams that inspire. Dreams that hamper, 
disregard them. Dreams that inspire, internalize, make it part of your life, make it something that should be worthy and putting it into part of your life. So what we've learned so far is two practical approaches towards dreams. The approach of the Alter Rebbe that gave us some clarity on how we should react to our dreams, where they come from and how to deduce what the source of the dream is. But the last question that we have for today, is there any way that I can actually shape and make a difference in my dreams? How do I reduce nightmares? How do I reduce petrifying dreams, dreams that are negative? How do I make my dreams be positive and be something of prophecy? And here we continue with a letter to the Rebbe written to a person who, uh, that was struggling with nightmares. Text number 16. Regarding disturbing dreams, it is well known that the sages teach us about this, that people only see in their dreams the products of their own thoughts. Dreams are the result, listen to these words, of idle daytime thoughts. And when this, the cause is reduced, the result will automatically be minimized. You should be particular about reciting the bedtime Shema and ensure that the mezuzah of your bedroom is kosher. This is a general attitude towards dreams that we see that the Rebbe is echoing over here, first of all, the Alter Rebbe's approach for people with wandering minds, that the standard assumption of dreams is that they're nonsense. But there are ways that we can actually control our dreams. Number one, and you can see this as people age. You can see this when kids are off school. When there's idle time, the brain is always working. It's a vacuum. And when there's idle time and you're absorbing nonsense, you're automatically going to dream nonsense and have also nightmares. But if you're occupied, you're busy, and your brain is active, actively thinking about good things or about learning things or whatever it may be, those dreams will also change. Even more so. On the tables, you'll see there are some copies of the Shema. And this is the Shema which should be said before bed. Saying the Shema, you have it in English, transliterated. The last words of the Shema is, I entrust my spirit in your hand. You will redeem me, Lord God of truth. There is also in the back a special prayer. The prayer is called the Hamapil prayer. I have more of them for those that would like. The, the Hamapil prayer is, we're asking God, and I'll just read the prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, the God our King the of the universe, who causes the bond of sleep to fall upon my eyes and slumber upon my eyelids, and who gives my light the apple of the eye. May it be your will, Lord, a God, the God of my fathers, to let me lie down in peace and raise me up in a good life and peace. Let my thoughts not trouble me, nor bad dreams, nor sinful fancies. And may my bed be perfect before you. Give light unto my eyes, and I sleep the, unless I sleep the sleep of death. Blessed are you, Lord, who in his glory gave his light to the whole world. We're asking God to have a peaceful sleep. It works better than, what's that thing called? Huh? Well, sleep is a part of death. Our soul goes up on high. You say this in addition to the Shema. This you say right before you go to sleep. As kids, we were not supposed to talk after we went to sleep. So if our parents didn't want us to chat in our bedroom, they told us, make sure you say Amapi. <laughs> Are we allowed to talk now? We, it's best we say it right before you go to sleep. So unless you talk in your sleep. <laughs> okay. What we see over here is, the advice that the Rebbe is giving over here is reducing nightmares. Actually, there's a person that I know, and talking about one of them that the Rebbe mentions here, is A, Exert greater control over daytime thoughts. B. Recite the bedtime Shema. 
And thirdly, ensure that he has kosher mezuzah. There's a fellow that I know who told me the story, he personal experience. His children were having terrible nightmares. He asked, this was God, the story goes back 40 years ago. He wrote a letter to the Rebbe asking the Rebbe what he should do. The Rebbe told him to check the mezuzah on his children's bedroom. He checked the mezuzah. It was kosher. He asked again. I checked it was kosher. The Rebbe said, check the mezuzah and its placement. Mm -hmm. And he realized that mistakenly, he lowered the mezuzah so that when his kids go to bed, they can kiss the mezuzah. But because he lowered it, it was not in the correct place. When he put the mezuzah back in its correct place, they no longer had nightmares. A mezuzah is protection. A mezuzah on our home door, on our front door, is our protection. How does it work? Because we are people that have souls and bodies. Not only do we need to make sure that our bodily connections work and our plumbing system is okay, but also the wires that connect us with above. Because if our soul is not working, our body is not going to work. And many times when we see that there may be a problem in our physical, it is because there's an underlying problem in our spiritual. And just that mezuzah on our front door can fix the problem. There are fascinating stories. Just this week I was watching a story somebody told about how they checked their mezuzah. They had a heart, the story was that a person had a terrible heart condition. This is going back again, a story about 35, 40 years ago. This person had a terrible heart, uh, 30 years ago to be exact. He had a terrible heart condition. He was rushed to the hospital from a heart attack and they couldn't get the blood to stop. Um, they kept on giving him transfusions until finally they checked his tefillin that he wore. He wore tefillin and they checked that the word Levavcha, which is in the Shema of his tefillin, the Lamed of Levavcha was completely gone. As soon as they replaced his tefillin, he went home from the hospital the next day. God sends us sometimes these little messages through dreams, through our mezuzah, through our tefillin. But it's the spiritual component of us that when we are wholesome, when our soul is taken care of and our body is taken care of, then we can have wholesome dreams, wholesome life, and health and everything else that comes with it. Considering this, the healthy approach to, to dream is probably to dream less and to do more. Because ultimately, it's our actions that shape our dreams, not our dreams that shape our actions. Next class, which is not going to be next week, which is going to be in two weeks, is since the dawn of time, people have looked to the stars for potential insight into the present and to the future. Do the stars actually make a difference? Next week, we will talk about, explore teachings about astrology, free choice, and fate. The degree of meaning our dreams have correlates with the degree of focus meaning our daytime thoughts have. People who think with more intentionality have more meaningful dreams. And people whose minds roam without focus experience meaningless dreams. 2. Even if a dream has meaning, not all of its details are accurate or meaningful. Dream interpretation is far from an exact science and can never be considered certain. 3. As a rule, dreams that cause worry and anxiety should be disregarded as meaningless. When dreams do have meaning, their goal is to inspire us to act and improve ourselves. 4. There is no destiny that cannot be changed. 
Even if we're convinced that a particular dream forebodes negative events, we should know that prayer and its vote can change any destiny. 5. Nightmares can be reduced through improving the quality of our daytime thoughts. Firm faith in God and a Jewish bedtime ritual are particularly effective in setting the stage for a peaceful and refreshing sleep experience.